One of the great ministers of the 20th century was a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. From 1927 to 1960, he was mightily used by God and one of the pioneers in preaching on the radio. When Mr. Barnhouse was a young man, he was invited back to Princeton University, his alma mater, to preach in the chapel. And his former professor of Hebrew, Robert Wilson, went to hear him preach and sat near the front of the auditorium. And when the service was over, his old professor came up to Mr. Barnhouse and said, If you come again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once to hear my fellow students. And I'm glad you're a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be. Barnhouse, being confused by that statement, said, To his former professor, would you please explain? His old teacher said, well, some men have a little God. And they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. You, Mr. Barnhouse, have a great God, and you will have a great ministry. I wonder what kind of God do you serve this morning? I find the most defeated Christians, the laziest of Christians, the weakest of Christians, has in mind a little God, a God who's always out to get them. But here in Joshua chapter 10 is a story of a big God who does big things through little people. Most people in the world see a God who is a pacifist, a sort of teddy bear, a heavenly Santa Claus who allows his people and himself to be run over by his enemies and theirs. But this story shows us a side of God that most people rarely consider. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. This story occurred on a day the Bible declares was unlike any other. I have entitled the message, A Day Unlike Any Other. It was a day when God declared who He was. Like Psalm 24.8 declares. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. GCF, I hope you would see this morning that the Christian life is meant to have days unlike any others in our experience. Days where we experience extended victories, extended blessing, 
in the experience of God's supernatural workings in our life. So consider with me this morning a day unlike any other. Notice first, our first point concerning a day unlike any other. It began with an onslaught upon the anemic. Verse 1 says, Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hohem, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Jephiah, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up. They with all their enemies encamped by Gibeon and fought against it. Before we look at these verses in the first five verses of chapter 5, in order to understand this passage... We must consider what I spoke on last week, Joshua chapter 9. Last week we were introduced to these people spoken of here in the first part of the 10th chapter of Joshua called Gibeon. After Joshua and Israel had totally destroyed two Canaanite people, Jericho and Ai, their neighbor the Gibeonites feared greatly for their lives. So they sought to deceive Israel. That was the last chapter. They did this by appearing as ambassadors from a foreign country who came to make peace with them. And this enemy, Gibeon, used the deception of hypocrisy to try to get Israel to enter into a covenant relationship before God with them. And because of Joshua and Israel's self-sufficiency, we saw they were fooled and did not ask counsel of the Lord, and so made this covenant. And after they entered into a covenant relationship with Gibeon before God, they had to honor their word and their oath and could not renege on their deal. But at the end of chapter 9, we see the Gibeonites' attitude change toward Israel. This is so important. Though they began by empty profession and hypocrisy, as sinners often do, they ended the chapter as repentant sinners, according to verse 24 and verse 25 in chapter 9. This is what they did. They confessed their sin. They acknowledged the judgment they deserved. And they placed themselves under the yoke of Israel willingly. Now this is a picture of God's saving grace in the life of every believer. Such was the case of Gibeon. 
Now when we get to chapter 10, which I just began reading, we have a picture here of new converts. And what we see in the lives of these new people brought into a covenant relationship with God's people is an immediate attack upon them from their neighbors. Five kings headed by a king named Adonai Zedek, who was king of Jerusalem, decided to gather their forces together to attack these traitors. Now, Gibeon being a traitor and a coward who made peace with Israel. But notice first, the cause of their onslaught was fear. Verse 2 tells us that, that, that Adonai Zedek feared greatly. You see, Gibeon was a large area in the center of Canaan that cut off the northern side of Canaan from the southern side of Canaan. And now that these southern cities feel cut off, they think they will lose their place in the land of Canaan. And now they decide to act upon what they think is going to happen. It is important to note that Adonai Zedek, this king of Jerusalem's name means, listen very carefully, Lord of Righteousness. I find this so interesting in light of these Gibeonites being in a new covenant relationship because it's often the religious, the lords of self-righteousness, who often attack God's newest converts. Why? Because of the fear of losing their own prestigious place, like Adonai, Zedek, would lose Jerusalem. And it is often those who are religious and self-righteous who persecute His little ones, God's little ones, the greatest. But notice, secondly, the consent God gives to this onslaught. In verse 5, we are confronted with the fact that God permitted this attack upon Gibeon. God allowed this to happen on a day unlike any other. That's important for you and me. Because we tend to think a day unlike any other should go well, perfect, without any sort of opposition or adversity. But that's not how this day began. Because God is interested this morning in His people, even His youngest converts, expressing faith. Faith is what pleases God. This was Gibeon's opportunity. Would Gibeon forsake their covenant with God's people in the face of great adversity? Or would they call upon God's people? Little did Gibeon or Israel know that in light of this great adversity, God had something wonderfully planned for them if they trusted Him. And they did. Never think, whether you're a new Christian or an old one, that God doesn't care when we are afflicted. He does. And He wants us to trust Him in it. 
In fact, if you think what God thinks of his little ones, I remind you of Mark 9, 42, which says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. There's a story told about a former janitor at St. Peter's Church in London. One day a young priest discovered that the janitor didn't know how to read or write, so he fired him. Jobless, this man invested his meager savings in a tiny corner store where he ended up prospering and bought many other stores after expanding over and over due to their successes. As a result, this former janitor had a chain of stores worth a tremendous amount of money. And one day, his banker said, you've done well for an illiterate, but where would you be if you could read and write? And the man replied, well, I'd be the janitor at St. Peter's Church in London. Sometimes, brethren and sisters, God allows trouble, assaults, attacks from those who are our enemies because trouble is often the means of God maneuvering our hearts to trusting for greater victories, for greater blessings, and for greater advances. In his kingdom. Secondly, a day unlike any other was brought about by an overwhelming cry for assistance. Verse 6. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the king of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. Here we notice the Gibeonites placed in such a seemingly overwhelming circumstance. And these king, five kings of the Amorites, along with five armies that followed those kings, began to fight against them. That's what verse 5 says. And the number of people itself would have been far superior to Gibeon's army. So in their distress, they sent word to Israel. To come help and save them from this superior enemy. And their faith was now being tested even as they just entered into this new covenant relationship. Take note of that. I hope you notice here the need. Secondly, for one another in the Christian life. We should reach out to Christian brothers and sisters who walk with the Lord who have wisdom, who will pray for us when we feel overwhelmed with the circumstances of, God, of life, just as Gibeon reached out to Israel. But notice how their need was delivered to Israel, because it's the same way we should deliver our need unto God. Number one, by acknowledging their weakness. No, notice verse six, do not abandon your servants. They were acknowledging their dependence upon another. They put no confidence in the flesh and acknowledged their true position before God. This attitude 
pleases God, brethren. It is the foundation of a spirit of faith. Humility. We are your servants. That's how you should approach the Lord. In your great cry of need. Oh, Father. I have nothing. Apart from your grace. Secondly, by offering their specific request. They said, come up quickly and save us and help us. Now we know God requires of us to let your request be made known to God. Isn't that interesting how many times the Lord Jesus called a sick man to him? And he said, tell me what you want me to do for you. Because it requires faith. What are you trusting me for? Is all Jesus is saying. God requires that. And here the Gibeonites possess this wonderful gift of faith. But also notice thirdly, they conveying, them conveying a sense of urgency. It was the cry of distress that got the attention of Israel. And it is what often moves the heart of God. So many prayers remain unanswered because we lack that spirit of desperation, that sense of urgency. Gibeon states his desperate need, his sense of urgency. David often prayed in the Psalms, Hear me speedily, O Lord. Thirdly, a day unlike any other happened because brothers opted to provide aid. Look at verse 7 through verse 9. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. Here we notice Israel coming to the aid of Gibeon, who was in the midst of experiencing an overwhelming burden for them to handle alone. Verse 7 tells us that they came up from Gilgal, which would have been a 20-mile hike through some pretty treacherous terrain. Gibeon was in a more elevated area than Gilgal, Israel's headquarters. And here we notice Israel actually fulfilling the law of God in loving its brother. Should I remind you of Galatians 6.2? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This burden of the five kings and its armies was too great for Gibeon to bear alone. So they called Israel to help bear it along with them. And Gibeon called upon those, as I mentioned earlier, who were mature, strong, seasoned, to help bear it along with them. But to bear one another's burdens is to bring some form of relief or comfort to someone else's challenging situation. And this is what Israel did for Gibeon. 
Now, we are told in Galatians 6, 2 that I just mentioned to you, when we do this, we fulfill the law of Christ. Have you ever thought, what is the law of Christ? Jesus answered that question in Matthew 22 when asked, what was the greatest commandment? Remember that? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And the second is like it, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. And when we come to our brother or sister's aid, when they cry for help, we fulfill Christ's law to love those around us. This burden might mean something to you this morning. It might mean that you have to provide financial assistance. It might mean you have to provide spiritual assistance like counsel, prayer, or simply listening to your brother or sister. Or it might mean lending a hand physically for someone who is unable to help themselves. How beautiful we see Israel acting in such a manner toward Gibeon. But notice quickly three things about Israel's aid to Gibeon. It was number one, despite wrong treatment. Did you hear that? Remember, Israel had just deceived Gibeon by entering into this covenant relationship with them on the basis of hypocrisy. But we notice that Israel expresses both forgiveness and love. And the fact that they came to their brother's aid immediately. And may I say, brethren, we have an obligation to bear the burdens of people who even wrong us. To forgive those within the church of their wrong treatment of us. And still come to their aid. Christ made this clear when he was so violently mistreated at the cross. And he cried out, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Secondly, Israel's aid of Gibeon was directed by God's word. Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. The word of God directed Joshua and Israel to help Gibeon. He not only instructed them in it, but encouraged them by it. And God's word directs us both help for our brethren and also encourages encourages us that despite what little we may think we can offer somebody... It is God who makes us successful. That's what he says here. Do you know that? Some people think they're lesser in the kingdom than others. You're not. And one of the ways that you can be a blessing to the people of God is when you see a brother in need. And it doesn't matter what it costs you, as we shall see in a second. You're willing to pay the price. Come to the aid. God makes those who are willing. 
He gives them the power to do the work of God. But it takes a willing servant to make a wonder-working servant. But thirdly, Israel's aid of Gibeon deprived them of their own comfort. Did you notice that? So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. Israel sacrificed their own comfort, their own sleep, their own rest, their own peace in order to meet the needs of Gibeon. Bearing one another's burdens, brethren, is costly. So much of what people in the church do revolves around maintaining their own comfort. Helping others financially is costly. Do it. It pleases God. Helping others spiritually is costly. Do it. It pleases God. Helping others physically is costly. And lest any of us ever forget, if any man would follow the Lord Jesus, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow. Our own personal comfort should never enter into the equation of whether or not we should help a fellow believer who asks for our help. Israel deprived themselves of much comfort, much rest, and their own personal peace in order to meet the needs of Gibeon. Israel experienced a day unlike any other because by faith, They were willing in love to bear the burdens of these Gibeonites. I want to say that again. Israel experienced a day unlike any other because by faith they were willing in love to bear the burdens of these Gibeonites. Though it was quite costly. Lastly, I finish with where this passage of Scripture really focuses. A day unlike any other requires a boldness to operate faithfully in our assignment. Here's where God steps in in all our endeavors. We, by faith and through love, faith working through love, amen, begins to happen. By his people, we see verse 10. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth-Haran, and struck them as far as Azekiah and Makeda. As they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth-Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekiah. And they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O son... Stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies 
Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky, and it did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it. When the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Notice on this day, unlike any other, the boldness Joshua and the people of God displayed as they entered into faithfully responding to the word of the Lord. After responding to their brother's need and having marched all night 20-something miles without any sleep, they were in no physical condition for an enemy, which had deployed five armies, but because they both acted in love toward their brother and faith in God, we notice first this principle. Power is perfected in weakness. And the Lord confounded them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekiah and Makeda. Now, when we notice in this verse is the cooperation and partnership God takes alongside Israel in the moment of their greatest weakness. And the Holy Spirit in verse 10 wants to communicate the fact that this battle was not theirs. This battle was the Lord's. I wonder if you know that this morning. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care how hard it is. I don't care all the opposition, the onslaughts, the afflictions. Your battle's not yours. It's the Lord's. And there's coming a day in your life and mine when no matter how hard this battle may seem to get, there's coming a day unlike any other where our victories will always be extended. And our blessings shall be forevermore. Because God himself will vanquish all our enemies. But notice the verbs in verse 10. God is the subject of all four verbs in the Hebrew. Yahweh is seen as the fighter here. In the moment of his people's greatest weakness. It says... He confounded the Amorites. In other words, he confused them. He slew them. He pursued them. And he struck them. And he did it all when his people were weak. And it's too bad that much of the church has lost this vision of Jesus Christ who fights for his people. For the Lord said to Paul in his weakness, for power is perfected in weakness. And as a result, Paul said, if that's true, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Now, the world brags of its strengths, and it finds not the power of God with it. But the church is to brag of its insufficiencies and its inability. And when they do so, they find God's power manifested through them and through him vanquishing its enemies. But notice also the personal pursuit of our enemies. He not only does all this, 
our God. But verse 11 says they couldn't get away. As they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekiah. And they died and there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Here we notice God goes a step further on this day, unlike any other. He just doesn't partner with his people. He personally begins to pursue his people's enemies. And it seems as if these Amorites begin to descend down a steep path called Beth Haran. Alongside of a large hill or mountain probably. And God decides to bring out his heavenly artillery. He starts a hailstorm that begins to crush them one by one. As they retreat down that descent. And only the Amorites were hit with them. Though Israel was in the midst of battling them. And most people fashion. The Lord God in their own image. That's what I want you to see here. The image they want him to be. They see Jesus Christ in church Sunday school pictures as only kind and tender, soft, prissy. Yet they ignore in Revelation. One who will come on a great white horse who's called faithful and true. You ever wonder why he's called faithful and true? One reason is because he's faithful and true to his people. And here the Lord in his fierce judgment on sinners personally pours out retribution on those who mock his people afflict his people, and seek to destroy his people. Listen, church, none of us will ever triumph over the sewage of this wicked and filthy world until we realize that there is a warrior whom you can trust to fight for you when you can no longer fight for yourself. Even Paul said, In the face of one of the greatest afflictions in prison for the gospel. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know such a God this morning? But lastly, I finish with this unbelievable picture of the power of God at work on behalf of his people. Look with me at it. My last point is prayer's provision for the miraculous. God gives us prayer for the miraculous. Isn't that wonderful? Then Joshua spoke to the Lord. Verse 12. In the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon, 
So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Here's the main part of the passage. I want to say something before I begin into it. Liberals and skeptics have done more to rationalize, excuse away, and refute these three verses in the Bible than just about any three. They say what it is said here in these three verses is literally impossible. The sun cannot stand still, neither can the moon, because it is the earth that rotates. So some have tried to say it is light refraction that enabled this miracle to happen so that God's people could faithfully complete the task God had called them to complete. When he said, not one of them shall stand before you, it seems as if Joshua was urged by the Spirit of God. To make this grand request. So there are many commentators who try to say that the sun and the moon standing still didn't happen. Something else happened that enabled light to remain in the sky. That this was poetic or some slip of language. But what these skeptics cannot deny is what this text says in the Hebrew. The literal translation of Joshua's request is that the sun would cease from motion. In other words, sun quit moving so that Joshua's words are clear. Sun stands still. And we notice that verse 13, look at it, confirms the answer to Joshua's miraculous prayer. So the sun stood still. Now, I admit that seems literally impossible to us to understand in our understanding of science. Amen? For the world would have to stop rotating, which would then mean that gravity would begin to cease in order for the sun and moon to stay in the same place. Because it's the earth that rotates. And because this miracle seems so outlandish to the natural mind, notice that the writer of Joshua makes reference to another book which confirms that the sun actually stood still. Look at what he says. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? Now this book was a book of poetry used by the nation of Israel. And they used it in their dealings with thinking upon the Lord God and His gracious dealings with Israel. So Barrett, how can you explain this scientifically then? Here's the answer. I don't have to explain it scientifically. You don't use natural means to explain a supernatural God. We need to think on that a second. 
I was going to go on, but I'm, I'm all these skeptics who. These are the same skeptics, I want to say, who believe in a creation. That God said, let there be light, and there was light. Well, how does that make natural sense? It doesn't. Because we serve a supernatural God. And I'm going to tell you what happened on that day. The sun stood still. Because God listened to him. God listened to a man. Hallelujah. God listened to him. And God answered him. And I want to tell you whatever need you have this morning. Whatever miracle you need in your life. In your family. In your kids. In your marriage. You can believe this. You can have a day unlike any other. Where God steps into your situation. And as you walk in obedience, just like Joshua, you can cry out for big things. Because you serve a big God. In closing, I want to remind you why we can have days like this. Why can we have days in our Christian life of extended blessings and victories? Listen carefully, I'm closing. Because there was another day unlike any other that began just like this one we read about this morning. It began with an overwhelming assault by the enemies. Upon God's Son. And there on the day he was crucified, he sought for help like the Gibeonites. He sought it in his disciples when he said, Watch and pray, but no one could find him. He couldn't find any help. He sought help as he was crucified on the cross. He said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken? And we can have great days of light extended and the sun shining. But it says when that day happened at the cross on the sixth hour, it grew dark. Darkness. And the sun refused to shine. Because God's hand had to blot it out from seeing such a heinous crime. Just as he was going to blot out his own son. Because the Bible says just like he did to these Amorites. In a sense, he threw the greatest hailstone, God the Father. A man, a God, excuse me, could ever throw. Is the hailstone of all of man's sin. God threw it down and crushed his son. All because you and me could have the great extension, the great blessing. And one day, that great day, when time will cease, and we all have no need for the sun, 
the Son of God will shine before us. We will have no end to our blessing. We will have no end to our victory. Because Jesus went through the darkest day that we would ever, that anyone could ever experience. I finish with this. Two questions. Are you bearing the burdens of your brothers? And so fulfilling the law of Christ. Do you come to help someone in need. Though it's uncomfortable. And inconvenient. God wants us to experience days unlike any other. But it requires us loving one another. The second question. Are you an enemy of God? Or a child of God? There is no middle ground. There is coming a day when God will vanquish all his enemies in wrath, just as he did in this story. And only those who have fled to Jesus Christ shall be spared. A day unlike any other is coming for each of us. Are you ready for that day? It's either a day of great judgment or a day of great blessing.